And so there I sat. Crisscross applesauce as a nine-year-old at the feet of my grandfather. With a book opened, his trembling finger working its way across the pages of an onslaught of dots that made a braille book. With a degenerate disease of the eyes, my grandfather had gone blind. And as a child, I remember sitting in his home with my sister and cousins and listening to him read us a story about a lion. And I thought to myself, what's it like to be blind? Wonder what he would do if he could be healed. How would he respond? And yet, as I've grown as a follower of Jesus, and the more I study the scriptures, the more I realize that before I knew Jesus, I was more like him than I realized. You see, outside of Christ, you and I are spiritually blind. Though we may be able to see physically, spiritually, we're blind. But you see, when we meet Jesus, he changes everything about us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, when we believe the gospel, he gives us the ability to see. Well, we see today in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus is able to give a man both physical sight and spiritual sight. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I'm not sure if you remember your homework from last week, but the homework assignment was for our faith family to memorize Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And so what I'd like for us to do now as you are pulling up Mark chapter 10, you can cheat if you want to, okay? But I would like to recite Mark 10, 45 with you. Can we do that together? It says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Such a rich verse. That is the apex of the entire gospel. That is Mark's theme throughout the book. Jesus is the suffering servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the gospel. It's the good news of God sending his son for us. Well, what's leading up to Mark chapter 10, we see where Jesus has indeed been on the move. It's a fast-paced, hard-hitting book. We see the word immediately showing up more than 40 times. In fact, we're about to see it again here in just a moment. John Mark is the same John Mark who traveled as a missionary partner with Paul and with Barnabas and with Simon Peter. And the information that he has gathered around this gospel is probably information about Jesus that he's learned from Simon Peter. The early church met in Mark's house, and here he is recording the ministry of Jesus. Now, he doesn't record his gospel in regards to chronological order, but he organizes it based upon geography. Chapters 1 through 9 take place in the northern part of Israel, and then chapters 10 through 16 
take place in the southern part of Israel. At this point in chapter 10, Jesus is ministering in Perea. It's an area about 30 miles east of Jerusalem. And now he's making his way towards Jerusalem. He is headed towards the holy city. And before he gets there, he makes one final stop at the city of Jericho, which is where we pick up in Mark 10, beginning with verse 46. The scripture says, they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. As Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, he encounters this blind man. And with his focus on the task of going to the cross, Jesus does not miss this opportunity to change this man's life forever. You see, even today, however, Jesus is ready to change your life as well. Well, what does that look like? What what must we do to experience the life change that Jesus offers? I want you to notice these three realities here in the text. The first is this, cry out with desperation to Jesus. Cry out with desperation to Jesus. It begins there. Jericho is the oldest city in the world. In fact, I took a picture of the city of Jericho, and it looks like this. Right now, it's a city about the size of about 18,000 people in population. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. And this is the last major stop on the way to Jerusalem. The next several miles leading towards the city of Jerusalem for Jesus, it looks like this. It's the wilderness, It's a bunch of deserts between here and there. And with his disciples and a large crowd following him, there were no programs to train this blind man for a job. There were no schools where he could go and learn a trade. Oftentimes, people who were blind, they were outcasts and they were left on the outskirts of society. In fact, verse 46 tells us he was sitting by the road. His only source of income was begging. His only way of eating was through the generosity of people passing by. I remember walking the streets of Nairobi, Kenya and seeing blind people with their hands stretched out, covered in rags for clothes, dirty and smelly, rejects of the culture. This is a picture, y'all, of us before we know Christ. We're all spiritually beggars, outsiders, outside of the kingdom looking in. But when the kindness of God appeared in Jesus, when someone shared the gospel with us, that's when everything changed. We were just like this poor man. We were beggars in need of mercy. I love how Sri Lankan pastor 
theologian, D.T. Miles, he said it like this, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. As followers of Jesus, we are beggars who are telling other beggars where to find bread. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have tasted and realized that Jesus is the bread of life and those who feast on him are satisfied. We never spiritually go hungry again because we see who he is. Well, as the roar of the crowd is building, as the parade of people following Jesus draws closer, the blind man asks, who's passing by? What famous person could possibly be going through Jericho causing such a ruckus? Well, someone tells him, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this man, he had heard about Jesus. Word had spread throughout the region about the ministry of Jesus, how he had walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. In fact, this man may have been recalling the story that we read in John 9 about a man in Jerusalem who was born blind at birth and how Jesus was able to make his eyesight come back by dipping in the pool of Siloam. He's aware of Jesus. He is familiar of this man from Nazareth who is a miracle worker. And so when he heard that Jesus was, verse 47, coming by, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This man is desperate. He's desperate. He needs hope. He needs a touch from the Lord. His only hope is getting Jesus' attention, and so he's screaming. Did you notice what he called Jesus? He called him Son of David. That's a messianic title. That's a very special title that we see that Jews would refer to as the promised Messiah. When you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you come across what's called the Davidic Covenant. It's when God makes a promise to David that through him would come a future king who would set up a kingdom that would last forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, the Lord says to David, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. God made a promise to David through you is gonna come a king. And this king is going to establish a throne that will never be thwarted. It will never be stopped. It will be endured forever. Well, Solomon is not the one. Solomon's throne was not established forever. So there's got to be another king. There's got to be another throne that lasts forever. Well, ultimately, it's driving us to Jesus. Jesus is the greater king who has come to establish a kingdom that will go on forever and always. You see, Jesus is the true son of David who rules and reigns over a kingdom that endures forever. And this blind man, he rightly knows who Jesus is. He recognizes Jesus as the promised Messiah who has come to save Israel. And he recognizes Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And this man, he's desperate. 
He's helpless, hopeless. He cries out to Jesus to show him mercy. And may I say to you, that is the prayer Jesus will always answer. When you cry out to Jesus and say, please show me mercy, he will show you mercy. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of two different men. One man, a Pharisee. The Pharisee bragged in his self-righteousness. He boasted in his financial giving record. He trumpeted his religious righteousness. But then Jesus contrasts this religious man with the tax collector, a sinner, a reject, one who won't even draw near to God. He keeps his eyes to the ground and he beats his chest and he just cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man went home righteous rather than the other. You see, when you cry out humbly to Jesus, show me mercy, he will show you mercy. This is the answer. He will always answer. Here, this is the request that you bring before him and he will say, yes, I will grant you mercy. This is what I came to do. You see, the cry for mercy is the key that opens the door to the kingdom of Christ. This man wanted relief from his blindness. He wanted to see and he knew that Jesus was the only one who could open his eyes. And you see, mercy, it's a cry for relief. It's a cry for compassion, well, outside of Christ, you and I, we are all spiritually blind. We have suffered under the weight of sin and its consequences. We need relief. We need compassion. So when we hear what Jesus has done for us through the cross, when we understand that it was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, that it was my sin that nailed Jesus, that it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And we understand that we are the ones with the hammer and the nails in our hands and what God has done for us, we cry out for mercy. And when you cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner, please forgive me for the, for the sin I have committed. Lord, have mercy on me for the punishment that I deserved. The Lord says, I will show you mercy. Question, have you cried out desperately for mercy? Have you come to the point in time in your life in which you are fed up with your own sin? You're tired of your own selfishness, the darkness of your own heart, the pit of despair of which you see yourself going. Have you gone to the point which you said, I'm done living for myself? God, would you have mercy? And the Lord says, yes, I will show you mercy. Crumble yourself, come to Jesus, get low and say, Lord, would you show me mercy? Maybe you're a believer and you've already trusted in Christ and yet you've allowed some small compromises to creep into your life. Sin is starting to grab hold of your life, your habits, your thinking. You're allowing things that you would never have ever thought you have got involved in. You're now in. Would you humble yourself and say, God, would you show me mercy? Or would you untangle this ugly cobweb of sin that I've created? God, would you set me free from what I've done? cry out to the Lord and say, God, show me mercy. And he will show you mercy. But when you do, you need to, number two, expect opposition from the world. 
as this man is crying out to Jesus for mercy, look at verse 48. Many, many warned him to keep quiet. The crowd didn't want Jesus to be bothered by this man. From their perspective, he has more important things to do. They thought, Jesus, he doesn't need a stinky, poor, nobody bothering him. He's got important business. He's Jesus. He's got a lot going on. He's got a crowd of thousands that are following him. He doesn't have time for outsiders. And yet, don't miss this. In the kingdom of Christ, no one is unimportant. No one is unimportant to Jesus. Nobody's too stinky. Nobody's too poor. Nobody's too dirty for Jesus. The king came to save peasants like us by becoming a peasant like us. Oh, this is rich. A king, a savior who came to become like one of us so that we can be with him forever. May I say to you, there's no one who's unimportant to Jesus. There's no one who doesn't have value. All are image bearers and are worthy of honor. Question, when people are several rungs below you on the org chart, when you have that girl sitting by herself at the lunch table, when you have that person dressed really weird, when you come across that person who smells, when there's that person who's in your life that you just roll your eyes, question, how do you respond to them? Do you scoff at their presence? Do you grow frustrated with them? Do you look down upon them? If so, today repent. May that not be said of us as followers of Jesus. That every person has value. Every person made in the image of God. No one is unimportant. You see, a mark of your maturity as a believer is how you treat those who cannot help you. And there's someone who can't help you take that next step. How you treat them is a reflection of your heart. It's interesting, you go to Matthew 25 when Jesus tells the story about the last day in which there who are the, the least of these. How you treated them, he says, that's how you treat me. May that be said of us. As we're looking across the lunchroom, students, as we're surveying our campus, as we're looking across the office park, we're looking for those who are sitting by themselves, those who are neglected, those who are forgotten, those who feel invisible, we're looking for them. And we're saying, you have value. You are not unimportant to Jesus. Listen, if, if you're gonna commit your life to following Christ, this is the path of Christ. And yet the crowd keeps telling this man, sit down, be quiet. You're being annoying, stop. Hear me, if you're gonna commit your life to Christ, expect opposition, anticipate pushback. You see, the call of, to follow Christ means you have to go against the crowd. Don't miss that, y'all. The call to follow Jesus is to swim against the current of culture. You have to go the opposite direction of the world. When Jesus preached the greatest sermon that's ever been heard in, in Matthew's chapter five through seven, he finishes up in chapter seven with this, this word right here. He says, enter through the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are, don't miss this, many who go through it. But small is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. What path are you going to take? If you're going to follow Christ, be prepared to walk the narrow road. Go against the crowd, seeking the praise of man, longing for popularity, wanting people to remember the name on the back of the jersey. It can lead to destruction. Many go that way. The path to follow Jesus is hard. It's a narrow path. It's much easier to go with the flow of the crowd, to listen to the foolishness of the world, to ignore the call of Christ. Many, verse 48, they kept telling him, be quiet. Stop calling out to Jesus. Shut your yapper. Now, if he had listened, if he had listened to the crowd, he would have missed his healing. He would have missed salvation. Eternity is at stake upon who you listen to. When opposition to following Jesus comes, maybe it's from friends or family or coworkers or neighbors or even someone who's religious, question how are you going to respond? If, if you go the way of the world, destruction awaits. Walk through the small gate. Walk the narrow path and you will find life. As Jesus calls out, as he invites you to follow him, you're going to be tempted to listen to other voices. Do not be distracted from the Savior's call. Listen to his voice. And number three, respond to the invitation of Jesus. I love the beginning of verse 49. It says, Jesus stopped. Question, what stops Jesus in his tracks? Desperate faith. One who's crying out for him. Jesus halts the caravan of pilgrims for one man. Don't miss this lesson here. We must learn the art of stopping. Okay? It was the great, it was the good Samaritan who stopped and cared for the man who was beaten up on the side of the road. It was Peter and John who stopped for the one man begging outside the temple. It's Jesus who stops for the blind man at Jericho. Y'all, let's not be so busy that we don't stop for the one. Let's keep our eyes open for opportunities for those people that God puts on our path. Hey, students, you know when you're, when you're on your phone like this and there's those, those blurry things around you? Those are people. And y'all, I shudder at the thought of how many divine appointments I've missed because I've been on my phone. We see Jesus stopping. Let's learn the art of stopping. 
and caring for the one. We're all busy. We've all got things to do. We've all got places to go. Jesus is headed to the cross. He's got a lot going on. And yet here he is stopping for the one. He says, call him. Now, those who'd been telling him to be quiet are now telling him, hey, let's get hype. He's calling you. Let's go. Now, can you imagine the elation that this man felt? The long-for-awaited Messiah, the son of David, the king of kings is calling me. This man, he's never been picked for anything. He has never gotten picked for kickball at recess. This man, he's never gotten picked to read the Torah at the synagogue. This is a guy who's never had a girl who's dreaming about him and writing his last name on the back of her trapper keeper. Nothing, y'all. He's not experienced this. And yet, and yet, here's Jesus calling him. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Jesus still stops and he calls on people's names. Jesus here is calling him as if he's the only person in the world. Today, Jesus stops and he's calling out to you. Come to me. Believe upon me. Trust in me. Believe the gospel. This is who Jesus is. He stops and he calls this man as if he was the only person in the whole wide world. It's a thought, isn't it, to think that the God who has a lot going on, the one who's sustaining the universe by the word of his power, the one who sustains all things, the one who knows the number of hairs on, on the back of every Tibetan yak, the fact that he knows me, and he cares about me, and he stops and he calls my name. Here is Jesus stopping the parade and he is calling, he is inviting this man to come to himself. And beloved, that's what he does for you too. Jesus stops the parade and he calls, he invites, he beckons you and I to come to him. It's pretty amazing when you think about it that the one who's got a lot going on isn't too busy for me. Well, Kenneth, how do I begin this personal relationship with him? Well, we see it here in verse 50. It's amazing here how it's all laid out. And as I was studying verse 50 this week, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 was coming to my mind. I was like, oh my goodness, these are like, like brother and sister. Like they go together, these two passages here. What do I do? How do I begin this relationship with God? Well, the first is this, throw off your old life. Throw off your old life. In verse 50, he threw off his coat, possibly with his change still in his pocket. This man is getting rid of anything from his past. He's getting rid of it. I don't care. I'm going to Jesus. I'm leaving what's old behind me. Second, you seize the opportunity. The fact that Jesus is here calling him, he literally jumps at the opportunity. Now, this is not a mosey. This is not a stroll. This man is not meandering over to Jesus. He is rising up with authority. In, in fact, the word used here is sometimes used in reference to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, earlier in Mark 10, when Jesus says, I'm going to rise on the third day, it's the same word. 
Same word. This man rises. He gets up. He jumps at the opportunity to go to Jesus. And then you follow Jesus. Following Jesus means he is Lord over your life. You follow him. He doesn't follow you. Now, here's the part where many will miss the kingdom. Because selfishly, we want to do what we want to do. I want to live my life. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to make my own choices. Jesus, you can tag along if you want to. Then you cannot be a disciple of Christ. It's his way. To be a Christian means that you forfeit your own life, your path, your desires. You turn away from the things that you want to do and you say, Jesus, you're now my Lord. You're my boss. You're my king. And I'm now going to do what you want to do. I follow you. The question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and to follow Jesus? This is the path. Well, Jesus asks this man, verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? It's the exact same question that Jesus asked earlier to James and John in verse 36. Now, the man's needs were obvious. He was blind. Thank you, Jesus. We, we figured this one out, right? As the son of God, he already knew, right? This, the man can't see. So why does Jesus ask him the question? It's to invite his participation. Just as God called out to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, Adam, where are you? God knew right where he was physically behind the trees. He's asking, where are you relationally? He's calling him out. He's inviting him to participate. He is pulling him out of the darkness, calling him to step into the light. Here is Jesus inviting this man to make his request known. And in front of this crowd, in front of all these people, this is Bartimaeus' moment right here. He says, Rabbani. Oh, this is so good. So good. It means master. The chief teacher, Lord. He says, Lord, I want to see. Now, Bartimaeus doesn't just mean physical eyesight here. He wants to see spiritually. You see, spiritual sight is far more important than physical sight. Physical sight is temporary. Spiritual sight is eternal. Jesus not only opens this man's eyes physically, but he opens the eyes of his heart spiritually. Bartimaeus' faith in Christ is what has saved him. And then, look at the word, immediately. Okay, that's where we get the word, the phrase on the move, right? Immediately, there's that word, he could see. Bartimaeus was just like Job, who said in Job 42, 5, I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. He was now looking at the Lord. He was looking at the one who had come to save God's people from their sins. Hear me, if you don't know Jesus yet, if you're, if you're a skeptic, if you're still asking questions, if you're still watching, if you're saying, I don't, I don't believe all this, may I say to you right now, you're blinded by the enemy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image 
of God. You see, spiritual sight requires supernatural work. Today, God can open your eyes, however. Today, you can see. Today, your eyes can be opened if you will believe the gospel, if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to Jesus, he will open your eyes to see. You see, this is what Jesus came for. He went to the cross for your sin and he bled for your forgiveness and he died so that you can be restored back into a right relationship with God. He was put into a tomb where he stayed there for three days. But on the third day, he came back to life, defeating death. So all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus by faith, not by works, not by human effort, not because you're a good person, all because of his grace, God offers you eternal life to believe upon his son, Jesus. Today, believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus and you will see. In fact, that's the impact point. The one thing I want you to grab hold of today, it's this. is without hesitation, believe the gospel and your eyes will be opened. This man, verse 52, immediately he could see and he began to follow Jesus on the road. He could finally see when he came to Jesus. If you do not know Christ, today I invite you to believe. Today, say, Lord, I'm ready to follow you. I'm giving you my heart and my life. I'm crying out, Rabbi, Lord, Master, Jesus, you're the boss of my life. I'm no longer living for me. My old self is dead. My life is now hidden with you, Jesus, and you are my everything. I'm following you for the rest of my life. It begins right there. You believe upon Jesus and he will help you to see. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and it's been a while since you told him, thank you. Thank you for opening my eyes. I was once was blind, but now I see. All because. There's a story about a lion of the tribe of Judah who came to open your eyes. So today, trust in Jesus. Believe the gospel. Ask for mercy. And he'll open your eyes and help you to see.